Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. And this week, we're going to talk about Afghanistan, the rapid collapse of the Afghan government forces and the Taliban seizure of power have shocked Europeans and led to an intense debate about what this means for Europe's core interests, for European defence and security issues. But even more importantly, it's leading to a whole series of questions about Europe's relationships with other powers, such as China, Turkey, and above all, what it means for the future of the West. To help us make sense of these questions, we have an all-star cast from different parts of ECFR. Back to ECFR, first up, we have Jeremy Shapiro, our research director, who has returned from his sabbatical in, in America, who can tell us a bit more about what this crisis means from a transatlantic perspective. Also down the line from Berlin, we have Andrew Small, who's a senior transatlantic fellow with the Asia Programme at the German Marshall Fund and associate senior policy fellow at ECFR, um, who's been doing a lot of work on, on for us on what the Chinese angle to the Afghan debacle is. And from Istanbul, we have Asla Aydin Tashbash, also a senior policy fellow at ECFR, regular contributor to the podcast, who can not only tell us about Turkey, but has also been involved in covering this story for the last few decades as a journalist and can uh, put it into that bigger historical perspective as well. I think we should start with this question about the impact on the transatlantic relationship and NATO and above all, our conceptions of European security and defence and uh, how we define our interests, how we defend them. Because I think the, the reaction to what's happened on the ground uh, in Kabul is partly motivated by a horror at the the human consequences for, for, for many people who are living on the ground. But there's also something else which has been, as, apart from all of the, the innocent civilians and, and other people who've worked with European governments who've not been allowed out of the country on, on different planes, something else has been left behind in Hamid Karzai International Airport. And that was a kind of bigger project of liberal international order building. Um, and a lot of people seem very disillusioned with the idea of the West. Jeremy, can you talk a bit about what you think Europeans need to draw from the American debate on Afghanistan, what it means for for NATO, what it means for how we look at at the US going forwards, and, and what it also means for how we should think about the future of military interventions more generally? Oh, that's a lot. I'll try. I'm just back from sabbatical, Mark. You need to not let, lay it on so thick. Um, yeah, look, uh, it's... To, to my mind, the Europeans should take from what uh, from the American debate on Afghanistan a lesson, frankly, that they should have taken several years ago, which is that uh, the United States is becoming more like a normal country. That doesn't mean that it's going to be completely withdrawn from the world. It doesn't mean it's going to be unilateralist or isolationist or anything like that. But it does mean that it that this is the sort of third president in a row, which has basically said to the Europeans and the rest of the world, we're not really interested in policing the world anymore. We don't have the political consensus to do it. We don't have the relative power to do it. We have to focus a little bit more on our vital interests. And I think that that message has been, frankly, a message that the United States has been trying to send for about a decade. And 
this is the most <laughs> this is the most clarion call, but I've hasn't been heard up till now, certainly in Europe. And uh, I'm a little bit dubious that it will be heard in Europe. It certainly should be, I think. But I think that there is too much at stake for a lot of European countries to really give up on the idea that the United States is going to be their protector. And they're still clinging to that idea, despite what is becoming, to my mind, a sort of abundance of evidence and experience that it's not a very good idea for protecting their sovereignty. So, Asta, you were you covered the beginning of the mission and have been back and forth between Washington and the region uh, many times looking at, at how the U.S. role. What lessons do you think other people are, are taking in the region from, from what happened in Afghanistan? Is this seen as a kind of wise attempt to reprioritize American power so that uh, the U.S. can get ready for for the new coming conflict with China? Or is this something which is uh, catastrophic in terms of the credibility of the U.S. on the ground and and how it's seen in, in other parts of the world? Well, Mark, I'm also a little bit surprised that European reaction in the sense that Europeans were sidelined on this decision, but it was coming. This had clearly been an ongoing discussion in U.S. politics. And I to, to be sensationalist here for the sake of argument, I think the age of the war on terror is looking to be over. It's not the constant drumbeat of global politics over the past not 20, but even last 30 years, may not be the guiding principle, at least not for the U.S. And I think there's a lot to unpack there. And certainly implications not just for Asia, and but also Africa, uh, certainly Libya and Syria. It's not, this was carried out in uh, an unplanned and uh, unorganized manner. There's no doubt that evacuations and everything else should have been done more smoothly. But let's focus on the big story. It's that a a huge reassessment of U.S. engagement in areas and countries where the original theme was war on terror. That is clearly changing. It should also be something Europeans think about, particularly when it comes to recent engagements in, in Africa and some other parts. Another I think very interesting point is when I was in Washington in May, people were already discussing how soon after the U.S. withdrawal would the entire country fall under Taliban rule. So this was not a surprise. It was just a matter of timing. It's so, you know, people were talking about things like three months to six months. Jeremy is in a better place to tell us about some of those discussions. But it didn't happen on one fine day in July or August. It was clearly something that had been coming. And that's where Turkey came in. Maybe we'll talk about that later. But in terms of the bigger picture, I think, without the war on terror as the guiding principle. We need to really think about priorities, not just in terms of European strategic autonomy, but also priorities within the transatlantic alliance. So, Andrew, you have obviously been looking at this combustible region from a Chinese angle. You wrote a brilliant book about China and Pakistan, which has a lot on China's relations with the Taliban. So it'd be interesting to kind of talk about the the kind of local consequences of what's happened for, for China, given its engagement there. And you've written some great things for our website on that. But maybe before we come to the local questions, you could talk about it from a big picture perspective as well. Does this make the US look like a more or less formidable competitor from a Chinese perspective, the fact that it's divested itself of its failing mission in Afghanistan? 
I mean, I think for for China, there had really been this sense of this sort of long window of opportunity um, from 9-11 on, in a sense, and in one way from the invasion of Afghanistan. Um, I think the sense was that with the US embroiled with counterinsurgency, the greater Middle East, and then a series of crises that would keep dragging the US back in, it gave China the opportunity to push ahead with what it saw as far more important strategic theaters and, and priorities without the level of pushback from the US they were concerned they might face. Uh, so in a certain way, there was always been a kind of long-standing fear that the US will strategically focus again on, on China, that once China becomes the kind of top-tier priority for US foreign policy and where you don't have this kind of perpetual round of what China would tend to see as, as distractions from the bigger prize, uh, that it's going to be a more difficult environment for them. Um, but in addition to that, that essentially there's a kind of trap element left behind for, for China, that the US draws down in a manner that the Chinese have characterized as irresponsible, and certainly they're concerned about the outcome um, there, which, which we can go into, uh, but that they are going to have to take on more of a burden for dealing with the consequences in um, their Western periphery, just as the US reprioritizes its attention on all of the theaters that China sees as, as more important, the maritime space. Uh, the Indo-Pacific technology competition, um, all of these sorts of things. So I think China is concerned about this. The manner of the withdrawal has been something that China's obviously been able to make propaganda value out of. Uh, and I think, I mean, they've been waiting for this for some time. They've, they've been anticipating this virtually since the Obama surge slash withdrawal speech, uh, basically a decade ago. So they've been ready to try to kind of push the line on US partners and allies that this proves US unreliability and all of these sorts of things that we saw rolled out from the, the state media propaganda outlets and things. Uh, but I think, I think they are concerned that this represents a kind of rather brutal, ruthless strategic reprioritizing and that they are the strategic priority. So, Jeremy, do you share Andrew's sense that this is actually just a strategic masterstroke, even though the entire foreign policy community in Washington seems to hate it? Yes, I do share it. And that's how I know that it's a masterstroke, is that the entire blob hates it. Look, I mean, I think what Andrew said is incredibly important. And I really wish that people in Washington would listen to that kind of thing more. This argument that you sort of alluded to when you asked about U.S. credibility is a sort of trap that Washington has fallen into over and over again. Look, the issue here is not U.S. credibility to defend Afghanistan, which is, which is not in the U.S. interest and makes no sense from a strategic standpoint. You, you don't gain credibility from doing something stupid uh, just because you said you would. The point is that, as, as Andrew was saying, that the United States is now more focused on the strategic issues that matter and will be able to devote more time and attention to them. And, you know, the U.S. has supposedly has abandoned missions like this many, many times, going back to Vietnam. And you don't lose credibility for that if that decision makes sense from a strategic standpoint, because when the Chinese or whoever else is modeling the next U.S. decision, they'll understand the criteria upon which it was based and understand that it has a sort of strategic dimension to it. And what's intriguing about what Andrew said to most to me is that the Chinese understand that. They're worried about it. They are, they are focused on the geostrategic implications of this and the negatives for that. But they're simultaneously, through their propaganda, reinforcing this 
absurd credibility, uh, reliability argument, which is very neuralgic in Washington and has a, and has an effect, which actually works. But I suppose to be devil's advocate for a second, um, one of the fundamental planks of this rebalancing towards the competition with China, which, which Biden laid out, was bringing allies with the US. Because obviously, if you look at a straightforward uh, balance sheet between China and America over the next few decades, it's inevitable that China will catch up with and overtake the US in terms of its economic size and eventually military spending as well, um, and maybe along various other dimensions of power. But if the US and all of its allies are put uh, up against China and all of its allies, Pakistan in brackets and North Korea, then the, the dynamics look very different. So could uh, there be a sort of modified version of this credibility thing that, that it's not great practice, you know, dragging all of these allies into Afghanistan and then not talking to any of them as you uh, get out, saying lots of things about how this is a mission to transform and to, uh, the, the country to spread democracy, to educate girls, and then uh, denying that you ever said any of those things. No, I wouldn't count that as a, I wouldn't count that as a masterstroke. And let me be clear, Afghanistan is an American failure, but it's an American failure over the course of 20 years. It's not a Biden administration failure. Um, and so it was unwise from a coalition building standpoint to do those things. Um, but, but it won't have a fundamental effect on uh, whatever coalition or the effectiveness of the coalition that the United States is able to assemble to deal with China because the, that geostrategic logic applies to the allies as well. And they weren't in Afghanistan because they, they uh, applauded American consultation techniques. They, they were there because they felt like they needed, that was the price they needed to pay for American protection, that that was their geostrategic dues, and they were willing to pay them. And I think the China situation will change what, uh, the China question will change what allies are willing to do. But the fact that America has treated its allies this way in Afghanistan won't. Uh, and I think what, what, you can, what you can see lining up in China is, uh, on the China issue is that the Europeans are, you know, let's say not super enthusiastic about getting on board with what the Americans are doing, but are also not going to seriously oppose it or come out in a sort of, any sort of outright defiance. But the main allies for this effort lie in the region. And that's where the United States is trying to find them. Would you agree with that, Andrew? Well, I mean, I, I surprisingly, uh, uh, yes. I, this is in a neutral level of agreement with with Jeremy. And yeah, I, we're going to have to do something about that, Andrew. I'm sure we'll be able to fix that in the rest of the podcast. I, I think it is understood now that essentially China is now part of the new transatlantic bargain. Like how China is approached by various states that don't necessarily see themselves as having identical interests with the US, do see the interest in taking some of the measures that the US considers to be in its strategic interests in, in order to kind of maintain the bargain in, in a new form. And I mean, if you're, if you're looking at certain, for instance, uh, Central European states that, and, and the fact that China starts to feature in a NATO context and these sorts of things, it's quite clear what's involved in this. I mean, there's a, there's a different discussion, obviously, with France and Germany, but I, I think over the last year in particular, it's become clear that some degree of better alignment with the US on what it 
it understands to be its top strategic uh, priority is becoming uh, is understood to be kind of part of the equation now in a, in, in a different way, uh, even for states that don't necessarily think in in identical form. Let alone when you're talking about the Asian allies, a number of whom thought the 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 level of focus on counterinsurgency in continental Asia and, and these sorts of things was misplaced in the first place, and would have liked to see the U.S. prioritizing uh, the maritime sphere, Taiwan, Japan, all of these sorts of things um, some time ago. India is in a very different category, where I, I think India, uh, for, for obvious reasons, is, is particularly frustrated with, with the way this is, has been handled. And of course, it makes a difference. The manner in which this has been done, I mean, China will be looking to kind of uh, exploit whatever discontent there is. It's, it, it's not helpful if some of the European allies are coming, are, are in the mood that they're in. But I mean, as Jeremy said in, in the beginning of his comments, the same logic applies for the Europeans who are on, on some of the issue areas that were, were on the economic and technology side, that kind of preponderance of leverage that can be gained from working with like-minded others just obviously leads in a certain way to, to the fact that much as the US has realized it can't do this fully alone with China, neither can Europe, neither can a maximally strategically autonomous Europe um, achieve any of its priorities with, with China if, if it attempts to do it itself. And so I think if you look at what's going on in the Trade and Technology Council and all of these sorts of things, that it's just on a completely parallel track to what's going on on some of these security questions around European capabilities. Um, Europe is, of course, also essentially a peer on, on some of the areas that, that matter most on the China equation, on the transatlantic side, on, on the kind of trade and economic economic sphere. So I think there's just quite a different logic to it. And certainly the bad blood around some of this is, is unhelpful. And, and I'm sure China will try and find ways to poke at that. But I, I think the logic and, and the rationale for that form of expanded cooperation just applies equally to, to, to both sides on this question. And, and again, much more so in, in a very clear way. And we, we've seen all the kind of initial attempts to gauge reaction from some of the other allies in Asia. And, and, and I think for many of them, this has been something they would have liked to see the US do before. So Asa, it'd be great to hear what all these things look like from a Turkish perspective, but also whether you are as sanguine about these questions of American credibility in the Middle East, or whether you think that maybe the people in the blob have point about, um, about American power actually being lessened by what's happened. Well, I think it did it look like US departure from Saigon? Yes. But did that have a waning influence on US power in Asia? I'm not so sure. Similarly, this was a badly planned exodus. There is no doubt about that. It was announced, and that's also a failure of the Trump administration having announced May as a target. But having said that, I think people also sort of understand that there is no smoother way of leaving a country like Afghanistan. And I think that the refugee wave, the refugee wave has not been as big as people in uh, people in Europe in particular have predicted. So they are, today we've had the announcement of a government. It's surprise, surprise, it's not an inclusive government. But I think at this point, people are focused on preventing a state collapse and keeping the airport open and preventing a, a, a refugee wave. So that's where Turkey comes in. Powers like Turkey, Pakistan, Qatar are playing a particularly important role in as Taliban whispers, for lack of a better word. And uh, it, this has had a tremendously in, interesting impact on Turkish-American relationship. Uh, until a few months ago, we were talking about 
the, the lowest point in the, in, in the Turkish-American relationship and how the Biden administration was cool shouldering Ankara and not picking up uh, Erdogan's calls, etc. Uh, passing the Ar Armenian genocide resolution, it looked for a while that Turkey was uh, in the doghouse. But uh, what a difference a few months makes. I think uh, Turkey offering uh, to send peacekeepers to Afghanistan after the US withdrawal, that didn't happen, of course, because of the swift Taliban takeover. But now this talk of uh, Turkey and Qatar running the airport, which is proving to be a very important leverage. Uh, Ankara sort of uh, jumping in sort of uh, and actually offering to be a bridge to the Taliban with the Taliban. Uh, similarly, Qatar, obviously Pakistan. So, you know, it has implications for U.S. influence in the region in different and less obvious ways, I think, uh, certainly in, the, in terms of the relationship between Turkey and the U.S., it, it seems to benefit Erdogan, but it also seems to benefit the Biden administration to have these regional allies and, uh, and proxies taking on uh, the rest of whatever Absolutely is left. the American role. But uh, can we um, stay for a second on this refugee question? Because I think that is, unfortunately, the angle which most Europeans are, are most obsessed with and not necessarily in a good way, simply uh, <laughs> through concern for the human rights of, of, of people in Afghanistan, but because there is this sort of muscle memory of 2015. Is your sense that borders are now so firmly sealed, so many walls have been built, that the only place for people to go is, is going to be within the region, which is obviously where most of the refugees went last time the Taliban was in power anyway. But, but why do you think that there'll be many less refugees uh, we don't have a wave right now, uh, in part because I think uh, refugees are flowing into Pakistan and Iran, and Turkey is very determined it's, uh, to prevent a refugee uh, inflow for reasons that are to do with domestic Turkish politics. Erdogan is feeling vulnerable electorally, and refugee issues become one of the top reasons for voter grievances uh, against the government. So he is refused U.S. calls for even a symbolic number of uh, Afghan refugees and said, I can take on the airport duty, I can run the airport, I can send peacekeepers, but no refugees. And uh, Turkey is now going ahead to build a wall in its, on its border with Iran. So if you take Turkey, if you close off the Turkey route, that really does close off, in large part, a, a sort of a mass inflow of Afghan refugees into Europe, there will obviously be a trickling in of refugees from Afghanistan. But I'm not sure that we're looking into a 2015 situation. Would the two of you agree with that? Yeah, look, uh, I think there's been a, <laughs> the lessons of 2015 have been learned for better or for worse. And it's very clear to me, there was no way that Europe was going to allow that to happen again. And if you saw, and you know, they would do what they needed to do, however cruel they needed to be in order to do that. Obviously they prefer not to be confronted with that, but I think the, the threat was there and it was credible. The, you saw in 2019, I think in December of 2019, when Erdogan tried to unleash the Syrian refugees into Europe, that it, it didn't really work because Greece and Bulgaria stopped them at the border and the European Union and the member states 
supported Greece and Bulgaria in that. And so to give some context to Erdogan's decision to not allow the, the refugees into Turkey from Iran, it probably had something to do with the fact that he now understands that if he does let them in, he won't be able to get them out the other side. Um, and I think that that is a general trend in migration movements uh, around the world, frankly. You see a similar thing on the U.S.-Mexican border. And, uh, you know, it's it's a tragedy on a lot of levels for the sort of asylum system that we built, for the norms of migration. But it does, I think, reflect the populist politics of the age and the fear that even mainstream politicians have of migration. So this has been a, a very... Uh sort of Kissingerian look at the the situation. We haven't talked much about the human costs and human toll involved. Um, that is something which is troubling a lot of European citizens. Um, there's obviously a, a limit to how much influence Europeans can have on these issues. And there's certainly a limit to how much the Americans are interested in taking on those responsibilities. How do you, what do you think it is possible to do now? What kind of things do you think Europeans can do in the absence of, um, of uh, an, uh, much of an American desire to take responsibility for what gets left behind? Uh, can I jump in? Um, if we are talking about, uh, I think obviously the situation of Afghan women is a source of great anxiety for everyone, uh, particularly for women in Muslim countries. Um, there has been an outrage about uh, what has happened. But let's not forget that Afghanistan is now under Taliban control. The US basically handed the country over to the Taliban. So what do we do under those circumstances? Uh, we have to sort of start thinking of creative ways of humanitarian assistance. And I think, sadly, engagement with local authorities and uh, the Taliban government so, so that we can help women in Afghanistan. I don't see how we can uh, shun Taliban and still hope that we can help women in Afghanistan. The engagement does not have to be hosting Taliban in New York, in Washington, in, in Brussels, et cetera, but it can be working through Pakistan and other local partners in sort of, um, you know, and basically making it conditional. We can't be handing the country over to Taliban and then also hope uh, that this won't have an impact on women. It does, it did. So now we have to really think how we can improve their standing, particularly in turn when it comes to education. And it seems to me as painful as this is, the only thing that is, the only option that's, that's there for the international community is some type of engagement with Taliban through UN and other countries in the region. Would you agree with that, Andrew? The country is going to be in an in an economically difficult spot in the in the coming period. I mean, to 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 flip it to the the, the pieces that I'm following. I mean, of the influential actors who are coming in now, none of them actually have the wherewithal or interest um, to 
fully bail um, the country out um, to provide the levels of aid that were being provided by by the West. This includes China. This includes Pakistan. This includes Russia to a, to, to a lesser extent. Um, that you're not going to get a kind of backfilling on the economic support um, and the economic situation that's going to be very difficult in in the next. Uh, stretch. There are still going to be very limited sources of revenue. You've seen the Taliban uh, claiming they're going to be able to have Chinese investment come in, and, and this is going to transform the situation, none of which will come through in a serious way for, for years. Um, so when it comes to the kind of financial picture and the economic picture um, in, in, in the near to medium term, there is still going to be some leverage, um, which is one of the reasons that, in, in fact, you, you continue to have the regional powers uh, as well who are very anxious about this situation. Situation, continuing to engage very actively with uh, European uh, foreign ministers and, and, and leaders and with the US on, on, on this question. There is still a, a huge uh, level of influence, I think, in, in, in the next stretch um, on, 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 a, on at least a few of, of the, the critical questions. There's going to have to be a fairly tight prioritizing on, on, on what it's actually used for, though, because I think the Taliban's approach is obviously they, they know they have various new sponsors and supporters that will be able to provide certain forms of protection and 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 support there are forms of leverage and forms of influence that they're not going to be uh, willing to accept. Um, but I, I, I think they're going to be in highly economically straightened um, sit, uh, situation in, in, in the next stretch. Um, they're obviously at the moment going through the cycle simply with looking for diplomatic recognition and, and these sorts of things that's going to be the case um, as, as well. There are bank assets uh, and there's going to be a very continued humanitarian situation that's going to require support in, in, in the near term as well. So I think there's at least a window where some of that influence continues even without the, the military presence. Um, and again, I don't think some of the other states that are, are being posited as the ones that are going to come swinging in to, to fill in the gap um, are, are really going to be willing to do so on, on the scale that the country requires. So I think some of that influence will last a bit a bit longer than than, than one might expect. OK, well, we obviously haven't dealt with all of the big questions about the future of the West and what it means for NATO and military interventions more generally. But I think this has been a, an interesting uh, corrective to a lot of the discussion which I've been witnessing in uh, the media in, in the UK and um, in other European countries um, about the uh, immediate consequences for American power of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. We'll be coming back to these issues, I'm sure, very regularly with all three of you. Um, but we still have one thing to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Jeremy, what's on your bookshelf? All right. Well, as you know, Mark, I've, I moved to Berlin in the last week uh, and um, I could have spent the time uh, prior to moving, um, I don't know, learning the language or something. But instead, I decided to read a 900-page history of Berlin called um, Faust Metropolis by Alexandra Ricci, um, which is basically covers the history of Berlin from about 1400 to 2000. I'm up to the Weimar Republic, so I think it's just getting good. Fantastic. What about you, Asla? Well, I'm reading the biography of um, Carlos Gulbankian, Mr. 5%. Um, he was, when he died in 1955, he was the richest man in the world, having made his fortune on Middle East oil. 
but uh, and also a big art collector, of course. But of course, it, but his life story, you know, the background, the background is 20th century history of the Middle East, starting with the Great Game in the Caucasus and Armenian genocide and, uh, you know, the formation of Iraq and, and the rest. But it's a fairly interesting book with lots of uh, details on the foundation of some of the companies and energy companies that are still up and running. Uh, and of course, it's super interesting to see this Armenian, uh, Turkish Armenian, Ottoman Armenian who played a big role in uh, the Ottoman, uh, as an Ottoman elite, but later on moved to Europe because uh, the country had gone in, uh, in a totally nationalistic and inward looking direction. Fantastic. What about you, Andrew? Uh, so obviously we, we shouldn't go through this podcast without uh, mentioning your book, um, which has just come out, Mark. So I, I, I um, uh, but having what read that a before... sucker. What a sucker. <laughs> oh yeah, wait, I'm reading Mark's book too. <laughs> I, I'm reading uh, it right now. <laughs> um, but um, I will, um, I will actually, uh, there's a book um, that just came out this week um, called uh, Red Roulette um, by Desmond Shum, um, which is uh, probably the, I think it's one of the most important books to have come out on, on the Chinese Communist Party um, in a very, very long time. Um, it's an extremely readable insider account from someone who Mark and I actually both both know, um, who was very closely involved in the kind of highest echelons of the party, um, doing a lot of business with, with the former Chinese Prime Minister Wen Jiabao's uh, family. Um, his, his wife um, was then um, uh, in the Xi Jinping era, uh, indefinitely detained. Um, and, and the book is basically a story that is that the his story through this entire era of the kind of the the takeoff of of Chinese wealth um, the behavior of party elites um, and it's an extraordinary uh, read I mean there's, there's really virtually nothing that's been that's been written like it that's had so much kind of access to, to to all of these figures who are normally essentially kept in a in in a black box so it's 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 a it's it's kind of an extraordinary um, uh, text that um, I think a lot of people have been looking forward to for a long time. Well, that's that's uh, a great recommendation. And um, I can confirm it's an absolutely fascinating story. It's great to hear that you're all reading my book, which is available from from all good bookshops. It's called The Age of Unpeace, Why Connectivity Causes Conflict, in case uh, people hadn't picked up on that. And as I promised in the last podcast, we will be coming back to that and having um, some more discussions about it. But maybe the three of you, when you read it, should come back and, and tell um, our listeners about it. Uh, but for now, that's all we have time for. We'll put up links to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now, from Jeremy Shapiro, Asla Aydin Tashbash, and uh, Andrew Small and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our producer this week is Oz Russell.